grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. How much have you prayed in the last week? What have you prayed about? Do you ever get to the point where you look back on the last six days and find out you haven't prayed much? Or maybe you've prayed some in general before meals, before bed, but for some reason the very most important things, the things that are troubling you, frustrating you, worrying you the most, you haven't prayed about. Or you've prayed about them, but in a way that you don't quite feel right about. You've made important decisions. You've faced your own weaknesses. You've gone through pain. But you're not sure that you're doing the right things because maybe nothing's changing. One of the reasons we don't pray is because we get busy doing things. Prayer is something that is designed to stop us from doing things. It directs us from doing into being. Prayer is about being with God, not doing God. Prayer is not about getting things done, directing the course, or planning outcomes. It is about being here, now. And letting God be here now. It is about being completely yourself and letting God be completely himself. This is no easy task. The easy task we are used to is the doing task. The easy thing is to react, to speak, to pay someone to collect something, to get things moving. And when someone says something that hurts you or frustrates you, our first reaction is often to do something about it, to do something back, to say something, to demonstrate that we have been unfairly treated. We think about God at these times, some, When times are troubling us, sickness, worry, something we can't quite get our hands on, we try to figure it out with God. We go to him in prayer, maybe, but when we do, we're often thinking about how things are going to work out, what the outcome is going to look like. Now, this is not all wrong, because God does invite us to ask. In Jesus' name, and whatever you ask, he will hear you. But it is not the first thing to do. Our sermon today is about the first thing that Jesus teaches us and his disciples in Mark 9. How Jesus teaches his disciples, a father, and everyone who's listening. The first thing is faith. Trusting God is everything that defines us from beginning to end as we are designed to be in our relationship with the Lord. To trust is everything, but to trust means we must know him 
The disciples were waiting for Jesus to return. Peter, James, and John had gone up on the mountain where they alone got to see the glory of Christ transfigured. And the other nine were left down below on their own, dealing with the valley. They're in the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And when Jesus is gone, the disciples encounter a man whose son is oppressed by an unclean spirit. It's a troubling case that this father has not been able to resolve. The unclean spirit has made the boy mute. It seizes him physically. It's even tried to kill him by throwing him into fire and water. And none of the scribes, none of the disciples are able to resolve it. They all have opinions. All these religious thinkers are having opinions. But the disciples are trying to deal with this one without Jesus. The nine that are left behind know that they have a responsibility. Back in chapter 6, Jesus told them to go out with his authority. And he told them, when you go into a village, cast out demons. He gave them the apostolic authority to do this. And so they figured this is their work. This should be no problem. They've done it before. But why can they not do it this time? They cannot cast it out. They fail. And the scribes are watching. Jesus is not around to help them and they have to figure it out on their own. The scribes are versed in their own version of dealing with the spirits. They too perform exorcisms. They also are familiar with diagnosing spirit, the spiritual health of Israel. It is their responsibility to do this. And so they have an opinion on what's happening here, why the disciples can't do it. They've seen this most famous rabbi, Jesus, do amazing things, but now his disciples cannot. They're debating it. The methods, the means, the authority, the boy. But they're missing the most important thing. They're missing the first thing. They've moved on past that. They've jumped right into all the other stuff. Do you ever look at spiritual life that way? We want to envision what it could be, what we could do, how we could improve, and we think a lot about this. We think about what we are not, what we've not done, what we've done wrong, and we debate it. The Christian bookstore is happy to help and sell you countless books to take your money and tell you something about improving your spiritual life. These books will often help, often offer tips and tricks and methods from psychology to time management. The world is filled with ideas about methods, medicine, and money. Goals, goods, and greatness. For them, Jesus is a means to an end, but not the big thing. And that's how we are used to thinking. Our natural man is thinking about where we want to get to, how this should turn out. But because we are focused on that future vision, 
we're missing out on what's actually happening right in front of us. We jump into doing God before we have been with God. But we are beings, not doings. And the disciples have gotten caught up in the classic pitfall of so many Christians and Christian ministries. A doing-based, goal-oriented, planning and programming spirituality. And as a result, they cannot cast out the unclean spirit. Now Jesus shows us why this is so in our text when he deals with this man. The man explains to him what the case is with this son of his and how it's been going on with the seizing and the foaming and the grinding, the paralysis. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Jesus is pointing out the first thing. They are not believing. They are without faith. They have put their trust in something other than the Lord or him. They've forgotten about Jesus. They've seen Jesus leave. He's up on a mountain. He's far away. He might as well be in heaven. They've forgotten that Jesus is always here. He's always present, even when he is not. This was not about methods for exorcism any more than the success of our ministry is going to be about methods for outreach. It is about the presence of Jesus and the promise of his word now. That is what enables us to do ministry. That is what defeats the devil and his works and all his ways is the presence of Jesus today. Jesus redirects us. He does not get into the debates with the scribes, which was Satan's trap. He had actually warned the disciples already, get behind me, Satan. You are mindful of the things of men, but you do not think about the things of God. And then he commands them, if any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He's redirecting us away from ourselves when he says to deny yourself. You will not accomplish the thing in yourself. This is not something you can control. This is beyond you and far more powerful than you could ever imagine. And that's why we get defeated. And we must get defeated. Broken, fallen, dumbfounded like the boy. Why could we not cast it out? Jesus tells us. He redirects us away from the debate. He has no interest in debating this. And he turns to the Father. He is looking to the home where the man has been dealing with his troubled son for so long. Has anyone asked the Father? What's going on at home? Has anyone spoken to the Father about what he believes? What he thinks about Jesus? Does he understand who Jesus is? Or is he just looking for a religious outlet, a religious authority better than himself that can resolve this distress? Perhaps this Father has been immersed in paganism. 
usually in these cases involving demon possession, there's been some sort of history of pagan practice, occultism, or idolatry. If the scribes or disciples cast out the spirit, but this father does not come to understand what it means to believe, then have we really won? Will the demons not return? Instead, Jesus deals directly with the father. And the father says, if you can do anything, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. It's a start, but Jesus is recognizing he's not really getting it. In the ESV, it's even more clear when Jesus responds to the Father, if you can, and he stops the statement right there, if you can, if I can. Jesus is saying, you have asked the wrong question. The question is not if Jesus can. That should go without saying. Can Jesus? Is he able? Power is not the problem with Jesus. He can do anything. The question we need to be asking is, will he? Will he cast out the unclean spirit? Does he promise to do so? All things are possible to him who believes. So first of all, do you believe? Do you believe Jesus has all power in heaven and on earth and he can do this? Now this is not a statement to be abused for our purposes. Jesus is not giving us some sort of godlike power here to be conjured up by our will, what we want. Jesus is commanding faith and faith begins with stopping our will and knowing who Jesus is. It is Jesus who is revealed on the mountain in all of his glory that we need to lay hold of now. Now you see the two pictures coming together. The transfiguration on the mountain above in its brightness and the sorrow of the boy and his father and the struggle of life on earth in the valley below. This was captured very well by a painting in the 16th century. There was a work done by a painter named Raphael in the 16th century, and it was in fact his last work, his last painting before he died. Scholars have said that it's his most greatest work, and that it was beyond his time showing elements that wouldn't come in for another hundred years. What's particularly unique about Raphael's painting of the Transfiguration is it's not just the Transfiguration that he depicts. In fact, he actually paints two stories into one. Above you see the upper story where Jesus is on the mountain, rising up in his glory, shining with the glory cloud behind him, and Moses and Elijah are alongside of him. Peter, James, and John are cowering down before them. On that mountain is the brightness of Christ's glory. But then Raphael brings in a second image. The story that continues in Mark 9 of the boy who is possessed. And down below in the second half, you see the darkness. He uses much of a darker scene to depict the boy 
in the middle, rigid and pale. The father behind him with a distressed look, seeking answers and help. The disciples, in confusion, not knowing how to deal with this, pointing in different directions. And yet there's one disciple in red who's pointing up. It's reminding us of how these two stories come together. The contrast between the brightness of Christ's glory and the darkness of the valley. This is what we're dealing with when we see here the transfiguration and the sorrow on earth. Jesus comes down from the mountain, hides his glory in order to deal with the sorrows. He bears with our weaknesses and our unbelief and continues on toward the darkness of the cross. He knows our weakness. He sees men in misguided religious debates about methods and spirituality, and he rebukes them. How long shall I be with you? He's rebuking unbelief and directing us back to himself. This encounter is not about spiritual power. It's about truth. It's not about how powerful those disciples could be. It's about the truth of it all. The battle with sin, the world, and the devil is about truth. Who is Jesus? We cannot trust ourselves and our abilities to cast out the devil in our lives. But we can trust Jesus. Lord, I believe Help my unbelief, the father says. He's getting it now. His faith is growing. Not only is it possible for Jesus to help, but it is real. Jesus is really offering the help. So the man submits. Even though he knows his faith is not perfect, he submits and he gives himself completely over to the Lord. He looks to the presence of the Lord as real and tangible an earthly presence right in his family. He knows he has done wrong. He knows he has doubted. He knows he has not been the father he should be. And Jesus answers his prayers. He commands the unclean spirit to leave, and with a violent show of anger, the spirit leaves. It never comes back. Why could we not cast it out, the disciples ask. Jesus responds, this kind can only be driven out by prayer. So we're back to the beginning. What have we prayed for? This is prayer in the truest sense. It is not about methods, doing, or trying. It is about submitting fully to God on our knees, offering up a cry for help. And in this we know God can. He can because all things are possible. In this, we have to acknowledge it is up to God. Just because God can does not mean he always will. It depends on what we are asking for. Sometimes he will not. He refuses to do what we are asking because he knows we are, have not asked about the first thing. Faith. Help my unbelief. A prayer of repentance. And that prayer sets everything else aside, our outcomes, our demands, our planning, and gives it all over 
to the Lord. We are beings in prayer. Jesus is here. Jesus is now. He promises to be with us. The Lord's Prayer is his prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer we learn the first three things all have to do with faith. Hallowing his name, his kingdom come, his will be done. All directs us back to the spiritual reality of what Jesus is trying to accomplish. Our dealings with the devil. These have to be truth dealings. They cannot be directed back to our own will or our own ways. And then we will learn who the glorified Christ is in our lives. Because he is glorified when you believe in him. When you put your trust in him. When you bring an end to your own self. And you give it over to the one who is the end of all things. The Alpha and the Omega. For yourself, for your family, for your church family. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.